The podcast you are about to hear tells the story of a Katsi man named Slumuk. Members of the Katsi First Nation have been instrumental in us telling the story properly. We acknowledge that the story of Slumuk originates from the ancestral lands of the Katsi people. What you're about to hear, you may find graphic and violent in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Slumuk was in his canoe, heading up the lower pit river to his cabin when he spotted a deer. He shot it, then pulled onto the beach. Seeing blood, he ventured into the bush to look for the wounded animal. After a lengthy and futile search, he was on his way back to his canoe when he saw two men in a canoe out on the water. One was Louis Boulier, a half French, half Kanaka, often called B for short. And the other was Charlie Seymour, an Indian from Harrison Mills. What were you shooting at? I shot a deer, Slumok said. Come and help. I'll tell you when I get out of the bush. Just wait right there. Slumok felt B had a grudge against him. As he got closer to his canoe, B came ashore. While wielding an axe and swearing at him, if you don't answer me, you old so-and-so, I'm going to chop your damn head off. Afraid for his life, Slumok raised his shotgun and fired point-blank at B, killing him instantly. Seymour, the only witness, jumped out of the canoe and ran into the bush. Stunned by what just happened, Slumok stood there for a bit. <sighs> B was still breathing. He wasn't quite dead, and Slumok wondered what he should do. Should he take B back to his people? If he told them what happened, would they just shoot him down in retaliation? Slumuk placed B's body into the canoe and set it in midstream to drift down to the fishing party. Scared, he then got into his own canoe and paddled up river to his cabin, tears blurring his sight as he thought about what just happened. The following day, a boat carrying a posse arrived at his home and fired shots into the house. Slumuk escaped out the back door and hid under a fallen tree. To ensure he couldn't return, the posse burned his cabin to the ground. Months later, Slumuk died on the gallows, and rumors spread that his final words were, Nika Memlus, mine Memlus. When I die, the mine dies. I'm Crew Williams, and this is Dead Man's Curse, Slumuk's Gold. Episode 5, Guilty? If you're joining me for the first time on this journey through history, I recommend you go back to the beginning as we investigate Slumuk's story, which takes place in the late 1800s, about 30 minutes from what is now downtown Vancouver. I'm your guide, along with a mountaineer, a truth seeker, and a way shower from the adventure TV series Dead Man's Curse, as we investigate Slumuk's life, the curse, and walk in his footsteps. And if we're lucky, maybe find a little of that infamous gold. We'll also be joined by a host of experts and members of the Katsi and Stolo First Nations to sort fact from fiction and give Slumuk a voice from the other side of the veil. So far, we've shared details from a few different sources, including newspaper articles and court records from the 1800s, which use terms that can be offensive to some listeners, but we're using them to describe how events were reported in the press at that time. They're part of the official record, but, as I've told you before, the official record 
isn't the full story. In fact, 80 years after Slumac's execution, exclusive information emerged as part of the family's story passed down through history. They are the custodians of Slumac's truth, the guardians of his very words. His story from his lips to only one person's ears, someone he trusted and to whom he would speak his own language. The story at the beginning of this episode is an account of what happened around September 8th, 1890, from Slumuk's perspective. The press at the time mentioned briefly that Slumuk claimed to be threatened by Louis B., yet he was accused of shooting Louis B., unprovoked, on the banks of the Lillooet Slough. Because of that, Slumuk was a wanted man and seen as a menace to society who got what he deserved. It seemed there was little interest in pursuing Slumuk's motive, which raises the questions. Did Slumuk shoot Louis B. in cold blood to protect his gold, as the legend says? Or was it actually self-defense? I, the above named Slumuk, may oath and say that the Louis B. this deceased was habitually quarreling with me and that he frequently harassed me with improper language and threatened me more than once with violence and I was in constant fear of him. That is Slumok's official testimony for his murder trial, as read by Rain Pierre, a member of Katsy First Nation and a direct descendant of Slumok. You might remember from the TV series, Rain and I were searching for clues at the BC archives in Victoria, and when we came across that affidavit translated from Chinook into English, Slumok stated that he had felt threatened and that he had been verbally harassed by Louis B. Remember, that he was estimated to be an elderly man in his 70s who was being threatened by a much younger man. Even the coroner's report said B had the body of a, quote, well-nourished man, end quote. In fact, on September 9th, 1890, the day after the killing, the Daily Columbian newspaper called Louis B, quote, a splendid specimen of the half-breed. He was tall, well-formed, and very muscular, besides having a rather handsome face. It is related of him that once, under the influence of liquor, six stalwart Siawashes could not hold him down. And it was only by their dogged perseverance that they got him to the police office. B figured several times in police court owing to his fondness of alcoholic stimulants, but otherwise he was a quiet, respectable man, end quote. Let's pause for a moment here. This newspaper describes him as quiet and respectable, but also that he had a reputation for violence and a record of multiple arrests for drunkenness. On November 15, 1890, the day after Slumak's murder trial began, the Daily Columbian wrote, quote, B, the victim of the murder, was in the habit of blustering and threatening almost everyone with whom he came in contact. Against Slumak, he indulged something like a grudge, and for a long time, there had been bad blood between them. By the time of Slumak's execution, the account of the murder in the same paper had changed. Quote, B went towards Slumak after a minute or two and asked him in a casual manner, what was he shooting at around there? Without a moment of warning or any preliminary sign of anger, Slumak instantly leveled his gun at B and fired. Just before the discharge of the piece, B held up his hands and begged Slumok not to shoot, end quote. 
So was Louis B. a known bully or a peaceful, quiet fisherman? Did he threaten Slumak or was he killed in cold blood? Slumak's statement in court mentioned improper language and threats of violence. What could Louis B. have possibly said that would warrant being shot? Some of the newspapers at the time reported that Louis B. called Slumak, quote, a sorcerer, a pagan, and a devil. The worst epithets that can be applied to a person, end quote. Slumak was also called a Kanaka, a term referring to Native Hawaiians who were brought to the region in the late 19th and early 20th centuries as laborers for the Hudson Bay Company and other companies. Even though many Kanaka men married indigenous women, and there was some cultural mixing, calling Slumaka Kanaka would be tantamount to calling him an outsider, someone who was out of place, who doesn't belong. But then, the story you heard at the beginning of this episode refers to Louis B. himself as half Kanaka, so we'll never know for sure if this had something to do with the motive. However, according to an 1878 census, we know Slumak had a cabin located on the shore of Pit Lake outside of a nearby Katsi First Nation community. This could imply that there was some sort of disagreement or separation from the community. The truth is, a person like Slumak, who seemed so determined to live on his own terms, might opt to live in isolation instead of the middle of a community for nothing more than a little bit of privacy. Still, calling him an outsider or stranger, may have been an unforgivable insult for someone with such strong community values. And if we're to believe that Slumak was a stone-cold killer, why would he argue in court that he'd been harassed, bullied, and threatened by Louis B? During Slumak's pretrial hearing on November 3, 1890, the sole eyewitness to the crime, Seymour, testified, quote, I recognized Louis B's axe in Slumak's house when Mr. Moresby searched it. We had a bottle in the canoe for killing Sturgeon. These things were in the canoe when I jumped out." End quote. So, Seymour testified that Louis B had an axe and a bottle. Was this an alcohol bottle? Were Louis B and Seymour drinking, even though that was illegal for them to do under the Indian Act? In Slumak's version of events, he said he was attacked by a drunk Louis B. with a bottle from B's canoe, which could definitely be evidence that Slumak was telling the truth. And what was the axe in the canoe for? Without Moody and Florence Reed to corroborate Slumak's account that B threatened him, how do we know for sure that B didn't take the axe with him as he went ashore? If somebody was coming at me with an axe, I might have grabbed a gun and finished things off too. <laughs> Just saying. It's important to remember that during his entire time in custody, from arrest to execution, Slumak spoke in his traditional language, Hunkamanum, and sometimes in Chinook. According to the official record, he was not known to speak English. Slumak's, Seymour's, and all other indigenous witnesses' testimonies were translated into English by Jason Allard. Allard was the son of a Cowichan First Nation mother of royal rank and a French-Canadian father instrumental in colonizing the region under the banner of Hudson Bay Company. He was also, in effect, Slumak's jail guard. In the end, 
Slumak's side of the story was reduced to a few sentences of a translated affidavit. But even if we heard Slumak's testimony of self-defense, would that be enough to save his life? To help us answer that, as someone who's been working closely with and for Indigenous communities on their history and cultural information since 1992. My name is uh, Keith Carlson. I have a Canada Research Chair at the University of the Fraser Valley, and my, my research chair is in Indigenous and community-engaged history. And I've also recently been appointed the Director of the Peace and Reconciliation Centre. Dr. Carlson says that under British colonial court of law, Slumuk would have had a tough time during trial. As often happens in these cases at this time period, the media is quick to start to try to create villains and to create heroes and to create victims. Um, you know, they, they love drama and stories. And so what we see within the, the New Westminster Press at this time is an effort to paint Slumach as a person who has a bad reputation, has probably killed one, maybe four people in the past, I think is how the newspapers talk about it dating back 25 years without ever having been brought to justice, a guy who thinks he can get away with anything. And then also as someone who has uh, incredible woodsman skills, uh, has incredible indigenous spiritual powers that enable him to go for great periods of time without food, with uh, surviving in, in, in the harshest of conditions, and perhaps and probably is insane. Newspapers in the region assume Slumak's guilt even before he was arrested. He's been convicted in the press way before he gets uh, to trial. The cards were stacked against Slumuk. They were, they were stacked against him before he even pulled the trigger, right? Like he is seen as an old school indigenous person who is not becoming part of this new emerging society, who is, you know, if not overtly resisting it, he is passively staying away from it back in the forest, hunting, fishing, going up into the trap lines and stuff like that. And so, you know, as I say, the deck was stacked against him. And there were articles that printed rumors of other killings, though there was no evidence or proof of previous crimes. And on the other side, you have Louis B., who is uh, himself Indigenous. Uh, my understanding is that his father was a, a, a white man, a, a gold miner who had come through. His, his mother, I believe, was a Catesy uh, woman, uh, one of the Stalo communities. And, um, and that he, he had had some run-ins with the law, but they weren't around uh, capital crimes. These were around uh, being um, drunk and, and uh, in a state of intoxication and getting rowdy in, in certain circumstances. So he had been arrested on occasion uh, and then set, set free when he'd sobered up and, and kind of uh, fined and sent on his way. And so both of these people, from the settler perspective, were Indigenous people who had bad traits, um, but one of them uh, was uh, sort of deeply indigenous in the forest, all those stereotypes about indigenous people being of nature, um, being actually prisoners of nature, as opposed to settlers who come and dominate and, and take, take nature out. They remove nature to create open spaces for farms and cities. Indigenous people are regarded as prisoners of nature who live in nature, uh, don't dominate nature, but in fact have become dominated by nature. And this is how the newspapers are portraying Slumuk. They're saying that that he's this insane man, this deeply indigenous person who lives in the in the wilderness, uh, can survive out there without any uh, provisions and all of this kind of thing. Dr. Carlson says Slumuk was judged more harshly because he was indigenous, whereas Louis B. had a white father and was therefore more civilized. 
And so he has seen it in a more positive light uh, as a victim of uh, settler colonial alcohol that's been brought in, sort of that humanitarian impulse that settlers had, whereas Slumuk is seen as sort of the, the pagan who lives in the forest and who is dangerous because is himself wild and has no civilization, has no concept of justice in a British sense of the word. So how would the trial differ from what we know today? So this period that Slumuk is in and where this crime takes place in 1890 is right as the British system is shifting out of what is really an early modern, what the early modern historians refer to as this early modern period and into what we would recognize today. And so it has elements of both of of these systems, sort of the contemporary system that we know of today and this older system that really comes out of that uh, pre-enlightenment and through the enlightenment period of European history. Dr. Carlson says older justice systems had different ways of resolving conflict. You could have trial by combat. That was still, that was a system, right? And you could have trial by oath. And then the increasingly popular trial by jury, which is the idea that rather than two people swearing an oath and then some arbitrary judge making a decision, that a jury of our peers would judge us, people who know us, who understand where we come from. And this is sort of the the idea that we're in today. But Slumok's trial doesn't appear to be similar to a trial today. Why is that? My understanding is that once it was a trial by jury, then the accused doesn't actually uh, get to make an oath, doesn't testify by oath in the trial. The accused would have an opportunity to to make an affidavit, a statement earlier, and I, I believe that happens with Slumok. And then what really counts, though, is the judge is looking for eyewitness accounts. You'll remember that Slumak tried to have a pair of witnesses. An indigenous couple named Moody and Florence Reed testified that he'd been harassed by Louis B. Slumak's defense lawyer tried to postpone the trial until they could attend. The judge even paused the proceedings while the jail warden, William Moresby, went looking for them to avoid postponing the trial until the spring session. According to the newspaper reports, Moresby actually located them, but there are no court records of their testimony on Slumok's behalf. With no official written record, we can only speculate why this was. But if Moody and Reed were members of the Katsi First Nation, they might have been attending an annual event called the Winter Dance. That was the, the, the spiritual part of the, the longhouse. And there was a lot, of, a lot of other business that had to be looked after. So during the the year, you sort of keep a mental list of things to do. So maybe there's one of one of our kids needs to, ha- you know, receive a traditional name. Maybe somebody in our family needs to be, uh, needs some spiritual work. Maybe there's been somebody that's passed on and there's some uh, gift giving that needs to happen. So, you know, you keep a mental record of all this in your head. And when it comes to that, this time of year, and you're gathering with people in the longhouse, that's the time where all this we call it work. You can call it business. This is a time for it to take place. It, it's like, like we we already like today. We have some um, dates for the near future where we we know where we have to be in which longhouse, and and we still gather like that today. That was Don Froze, member of the Stolo First Nation, and our resident way shower on Dead Man's Curse, as Don just described. The Winter Dance is a sacred gathering that brings in hundreds of First Nations people from all around the region for many hours of fellowship, healing, trading, and community building. 
It has strict rules about when the community members can enter and leave the longhouse. In addition, authorities were not allowed to enter the longhouse without a warrant, which would not have been issued for defense witnesses. This would have prevented community members from attending any court appearances during the winter session when Slumok's trial took place. That could explain why the testimony of Moody and Reed is absent. But that's not all. Let's turn to look at Moresby's motivations. William Moresby was the jail warden responsible for the massive, weeks-long manhunt for Slumok in the aftermath of the shooting. Which means there could be a conflict of interest. Newspaper reports wrote of the manhunt, quote, Mr. Moresby is not the sort of man to let possible risk interfere and will bring him in dead or alive, end quote. Moresby was also the man that ordered Slumok's cabin to be burnt to the ground and destroyed Slumok's canoe, his sole source of transportation. So why would Moresby want to find witnesses who would testify on behalf of the defense? If he did find them, could he have said something to the witnesses to discourage them from appearing in court in support of Slumok? We may never know because we have no record of them testifying in Slumok's defense. The only eyewitness who testified was Seymour. And that was then the evidence that was heard by the jury, who then went away to weigh that evidence. Slumock earlier was able to also give an affidavit, his, his version of it, but he wouldn't testify in a court case like that because it was a trial by jury as opposed to a trial by oath, right? It was three years after, three, four years after Slumock's trial that that shifts, that changes. Slumock was not able to tell his side of the story in his own language to the jury who were all English-speaking white landowners and or businessmen in the province. They decided the fate of the elderly, hunkaminum-speaking indigenous man. I don't think there were any indigenous people on that jury. So in terms of it being a trial of your peers, I'm not sure that Slumuk would have seen it that way. Pretty certain that he wouldn't have. And so this is a hybrid period in colonial history. And in the end, uh, the jury decides. And once the jury decides, um, and this is the case right up until the 1960s, I believe, in Canada, if a jury finds someone guilty, uh, the judge has no choice but to sentence them to the death penalty. Um, so the, the judge doesn't have, a, have discretion in that regard. It's uh, a, a conviction on murder is an automatic death penalty sentence. Slumok didn't stand a chance. Because even if he had been canoeing home, only to be caught up in an altercation with Louis B, who had threatened to chop his head off with an axe, self-defense didn't exist yet. And once he was convicted, the gallows was his only fate. But you might be wondering how we know Slumok's side of the story. It comes from a 1972 interview with a Catesy woman named Amanda Charnley. My father, Peter Peer, witnessed Execution. Remember the catechist from Slumac's final week in jail? That was Peter Pierre. Pierre told his daughter Amanda the story of Louis B. threatening Slumac with an axe. Pierre and his family became the guardians of Slumac's words. Slumac didn't tell anybody about the gold he found. What else did Slumac tell Peter Pierre during their time together in the jail cell? And did Slumok tell Pierre those fateful words? Nika memlus, my memlus. When I die, the mind dies. All this and more as we travel deeper into the legend of Slumok to uncover the truth behind the dead man's curse. 
Thank you for joining me, and special thanks to Don Froze and Dr. Keith Carlson for their work in this episode. Dead Man's Curse, Slumox Gold is written by Ernest White II and Dila Velasquez. Our producers are Jessica Young and Dila Velasquez. Editing and sound design by Rob Johnston and Rosalind Gofour. Our associate producers are Valerie Hold Mershon and Gail Starr. Our indigenous cultural and heritage consultant is Gail Starr. Our executive producers are Chris Duncombe, Ernest White II, Michael Francis, Tim Hardy, and David Way. Dead Man's Curse is a curious cast and great Pacific media production. 